Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, beginning in chapter 1 and at verse, verse 10, and extending to chapter, beginning at verse 11, and extending to chapter 2, verse 10. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy." And they glorified God in me. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something... Whether they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which also I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. That wasn't helpful. 
What I have in hand is a translation of the Bible. It's called the Complete Jewish Bible, and of English translations, it is one. It's not that special, to be honest, but it does have its, its own claim to fame, and what that is is the translator has gone out of his way to really emphasize the Jewishness of all the scriptures. The, the apostles were Jewish. The Old Testament, of course, was given to Jews. So he translates in a very Jewish way. And uh, it's kind of interesting. It does bring out certain aspects of the text. I don't use it a lot, but it's there, and it's for sale in Christian bookstores. It comes out of a movement that has been happening really since the 1960s, and while it has slowed down just a little, it's still happening. Uh, Jews have been, by God's grace, coming to Christ. Not in a major torrent, but there have been a number of Jewish people who uh, have discovered that Jesus Christ is the greater David, and they have come to their king, and they have returned to Israel. Uh, this movement has spawned a number of things. Groups like Jews for Jesus and Messianic uh, synagogues, which are churches. In Louisville, when I was in seminary, there was a synagogue in Louisville that, after their rabbi had spent a sabbatical reading the book of Isaiah, came to faith in Christ. He had never actually read Isaiah. It had not been part of their reading and he was stunned. He realized he was looking at the Christian gospel in Isaiah, and to make a long story short, he brought his entire synagogue over to Christ. And I didn't have much to do with that, but I had a friend in seminary who really was hands-on in that. And so I constantly got from him what was happening at the synagogue, and it was really very amazing. It was these who had rejected Christ, because that's the, the essence of what it means to be a Jew today, they received Christ, and the Spirit was among them, and it was obvious that God was converting them, and it was really very amazing. And uh, evangelical Christianity has extended a right hand of fellowship to these Messianic Jews, and I'm very glad they have. It is a wonderful thing, uh, um, an amazing thing, a gift of God thing, that he is beginning to convert the Jews back to the real Israel, back to their king, Jesus Christ. Now, among Messianic Jews, they continue to practice circumcision. They do so, they say, and I certainly believe them, for cultural reasons. They say that to be a Jew is not just religious. It's also a people group. It's a culture. And they want to maintain as much of a culture of Judaism as they can. And part of that is they do practice circumcision. In the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul practicing circumcision for exactly the same reason. If you look in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, 1 through 5, we read this passage concerning circumcision 
and the Apostle Paul, who is the author of Galatians, our current text. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And when they had went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. If you look at that passage, uh, Paul sees in Timothy a, a hindrance to his work of the gospel. He is a man who's kind of without a country. His mother is Jewish, but she believes. And the text emphasizes she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. He, he's had that in his life. But his father was, quote, a Greek, and to, to make Timothy a little bit more able to communicate with Jewish people, and, and actually kind of more to make him able to communicate with everybody, because everybody kind of has to have a country, Paul had him circumcised. And the text goes on to say that through this ministry, the churches were blessed, the churches were built up, uh, this was a good thing. Now, you may be asking, why would circumcising Timothy actually uh, give him a country because nobody sees circumcision? Well, that's not really the way things worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you had communal baths, and people saw each other naked a lot more than they do currently, and so circumcision as a sign of the covenant was, in fact, kind of visible. And it was also a sign of being Jewish, And Paul wanted Timothy to be seen in the most winsome light possible so that he could advance the gospel without a hindrance. In our country, throughout the last century, it has been um, just kind of standard practice that circumcision was done in the hospitals at birth. That's not really the practice now, but it was for the better part of the 20th century, which means that today on the Lord's Day, you have a number of Christian churches, lots of Christian churches, that today will be filled with men who are physically circumcised. And in fact, the first churches of Judea were filled with circumcised people, and the apostles themselves, the apostles of Jesus Christ, We have no real doubt, but they were circumcised men. So, with all of that being said, how does verse 2 through 5 of our Galatian passage in chapter 2 fit with everything I've just said? Reading it again. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred, there was 
coercion to have him circumcised. It wasn't from the leaders of the church, but it was from outside of that. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Galatians is an interesting book. The man who wrote it knew what the heresy was among the Galatian churches, and the disciples in the Galatian churches also knew what that heresy was. And so Paul begins to write, and he writes to people who knows what he's talking about, and there's a very fruitful conversation between reader and writer, but we 2,000 years separate are not as completely in the loop. And so we have to kind of feel our way through the book and make out what was the heresy that Paul was writing about. And here in chapter 2, we have the first tangible expression of it, circumcising Gentiles, bringing circumcision to Greeks like Titus. Paul says there were spies who came into the Christian churches. They were not of Christ. They were snuck in to bring us into bondage, to lock us up. And their way of doing that was to emphasize, now, Greeks like Titus, they need to be circumcised. But Paul resisted that, and he says in resisting that, we made sure the gospel would not be lost for you. Because if they succeeded, the gospel would be lost. And this in the context of the rest of Galatians, uh, listen to 6 through 9, which is talking about this heresy. In in chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, Let him be accursed. Now that's the beginning of the book, and it deals with a heresy, and we have now seen that at least a major plank of the heresy is circumcising Gentiles. Paul returns to that same kind of language as he gets to the end of the book. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, this is what we read. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So there's another emphasis here on liberty, just like Paul had talked about them bringing us into bondage. You're in liberty. Don't lose your liberty. Stand in your liberty in which Christ has made you free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. 
You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So now that's very, very strong language. There is no question, but the Holy Spirit is saying through the Apostle, if you embrace this heresy, you are a lost, damned soul. If you embrace this heresy, you are cut off from Christ, you have fallen from Christ. Now we need to recognize what that phrase means. If you look at the original, uh, the Greek talks about Christ has been in your presence and you have been repulsed from him. It is not that you were in Christ, it's that Christ has become repugnant to you and, and you have literally fallen down the hill from his presence. You've not been in Christ and you have, have been shot into the darkness from him. That is exceedingly threatening language. If you become circumcised, you're cut off from Christ, you've fallen away from Christ, you're in debt to the whole law, you are in bondage, well, I better not be circumcised. But in the book of Acts, our author takes Timothy, young Timothy, and says, for the sake of the gospel, son, we need to get you circumcised. So, what gives? As you might imagine, the answer to that has been multiplicitous, depending upon where you are in the body of Christ. If you are a evangelical, your answer is probably going to be this. Now, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but generally speaking, this is what the evangelical answer is going to be. Circumcision is an act of the Mosaic law. Christians don't keep the law, and this book is contrasting law and faith. So in this answer, circumcision is really just one of many laws. Uh, if you keep the law, you can't embrace grace, and so don't be circumcised, or really any of the rest of the law don't do, because we're in a covenant of faith. Well, this answer is not totally wrong. When the evangelicals say that Paul wrote this epistle with the intent to contrast faith and works, works of the law, uh, that much is absolutely right. That is, in fact, very much what Galatians is doing. And if you go to Galatians chapter 3, and verse 1 through 9, uh, that can't be missed. Listen to this, this language from chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So when the evangelical says Paul is contrasting the law and faith, they ain't wrong. But there are a few chinks in this approach. One can be seen directly in the passage as read. The author clearly is distinguishing faith and works, but there's also a couple other distinctions, and that is the spirit and works and the spirit and the flesh. So even when looking at the book, it's not just faith and law, it's, it's also the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's the issue of the nature of the flesh. The contrast is actually a little deeper. But more than that, and that even could be seen as a quibble, when you look at a few other passages, uh, the idea that the law is not wholly righteous and good kind of falls apart. If you turn to another writing of Paul's, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this about the law, and the ending of what he says is kind of surprising. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, beginning with verse 8, we read this. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Well, at this point, if you're an evangelical, you say, Pastor Russ, you've just proved our point. The law is for all those kind of people, and it's not for believing people, it's for them. Well, the sentence isn't done, and it goes down through uh, verse 11, really. For liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So Paul begins at the beginning of that passage and says, now the law is not for uh, converted people. Uh, it's for all those kind of people who do those things. And by the way, the gospel also commends every moral act that the law commends. So uh, the law is holy, righteous, and good, and there's absolutely nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ that says, uh, God has come to free you from that law he gave you, which was evil. God gave you an evil law, and, and you practiced evil, but now in Jesus Christ you're going to do something totally different, and it will be good. And on top of that, in a, in a passage that makes our Lutheran brothers absolutely giddy, in Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse 26 and 27, uh, the same chapter that is Paul contrasting faith and the law, uh, this is what Paul says near the end of his thought. 
For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he goes on to say there's neither Jew nor Greek. But in this passage, contrasting faith and the works of the law, Paul then mentions a sacramental work, in this case baptism, and he says, now, you're all justified by faith because you who have been baptized into Christ are in Christ. And so Lutherans go, see, I told you, and Reformed people go, well, let's read it really fast and not really think about it. That's not appropriate. The, the passage mentions baptism. And it says, you've been baptized, you've been put into Christ. Once again, what gives? Well, if we were Lutherans, our answer would be this. Faith and sacerdotalism are in paradox. And circumcision is simply the now wrong sacrament. Now, there's some words in there I need to unpack. Sacerdotalism means God has given to the ministry, he's given to me, the grace of God. And the way it gets to you is that I perform the various sacraments. In the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven of them. In uh, Protestantism, there's usually two. But either or, if, if grace is given to me and I have to do something to you for you to receive grace, then I am the channel of God's grace to you. And in Lutheranism, they're totally okay with that. They say, yes, you're justified by faith alone, and paradoxically, you're also justified by the sacraments, which our clergy performs, and the problem in Galatians is they had the wrong sacrament. If they were just being baptized, well, yay and hooray, because they would be receiving grace. Um, Is this totally untrue? Well, there is a little truth to it. If you go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 through 11, uh, we find a connection between circumcision and baptism, and uh, it's significant, at least significant enough to look at. You are complete in him, says Paul, who is the head of all principality and power. And what has happened in him? Well, in him you were also circumcised. There's our focused idea again. And Paul says, okay, you've received a circumcision. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the Lutheran says, now the problem here is you've got the wrong sacrament. You are circumcising. Circumcision has found its last form in baptism. You're supposed to be baptized. They're wanting to keep the old form of the, the sacrament. That's the big deal. Well, it is true that the final form of circumcision is baptism, and our passage just said that. You 
enter into Christ in a two-step process, uh, you're buried in baptism, which makes you dead, and you certainly don't want to stay dead, but faith gives you life, and when you have faith in Christ, you're put in Christ, and in Christ you own his circumcision because you are in him. What Christ is, God sees for you. And so... Is it a matter of a wrong sacrament? Well, the answer is, yeah. But this answer doesn't really hold water when we look at a few other places. There is the uh, cliched but very appropriate uh, thief on the cross, the crucified thief. The poor guy never got baptized. Nobody baptized him. Nobody, okay, we're killing you slowly, but here, be baptized. Uh, That didn't happen, and yet Christ promised him, you will be today in paradise. So uh, if there's any human being that we know was totally saved, it's him, because Christ said you are. And there's also the issue of Simon Magnus. If you turn again to the book of Acts, in chapter 8 and verse 9 through 24... We read this very interesting account, and if you listen to it very closely, you're going to have far more questions about it than I'm going to answer because my sermon has a certain focus. But uh, Simon Magnus, he is with the Samaritans in Samaria, and taking up at verse 9, we read this. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So up to this point, we start off with Simon Magnus being a real bad guy. He's a sorcerer, but the, the gospel message has come into this, this community. Uh, he has believed, and he has been baptized. So he's got the right sacrament, and he's got faith of some sort, not necessarily saving faith, but he's got faith. If we stopped here, then this would sound like a very positive story, but it goes on. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you. So Simon's going to perish. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. 
You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, in verse 24, Simon says, please pray for me that that happened, and maybe it did. Uh, Church history tells us that Simon went on to be a major thorn in the side of the Christian church. He becomes one of the fathers of a a very wicked religion called Gnosticism, uh, and he becomes a devil's agent. But that's church history, and it may or may not have happened. Simon does at this point say, please pray for me. But the message is very clear from Peter. You are not a converted person. And yet he had a certain kind of faith, And for our purposes, he was also baptized. In fact, uh, his baptism was about as orthodox a baptism as you could possibly get, and yet Simon Magnus is definitely not at this point converted. So, uh, what shall we say then? Well, if you think about sacerdotalism, it is utterly man-centered. In sacerdotalism, I can give you God's grace. I assure you, I can't do that. I am a human being. I am subject to sin and failure. Uh, I am like the men talked about in Psalm 49. I can't redeem my brother. There is nothing in me that can do that. I am not the direct channel of God's grace. And I know it. And I want you to know it. It's clearly not true. If I, if I baptize you and you're not a believer and you're not converted, uh, the baptism doesn't do anything. It, it just doesn't. You, you have to, to have faith from God. You have to be converted. Um, I can perform a ceremony, but I can't change your heart. So what do we make of Paul saying, now if you're circumcised, you're out of the kingdom If you're circumcised, Christ will have no good for you at all. If you are circumcised, Christ has repulsed you. By the way, Timothy, come and we got to get you circumcised. Well, the Reformed answer has tended to be this. Sacraments are promises from God concerning the covenants they are attached to to be believed as the Word of God enacted. That is primary. A sacrament, whether you're talking about circumcision or you're talking about baptism, is a ceremony that God gives. And in God giving it, there's a message there. It is the Word of God that you can see and touch. And if you believe God's Word, you're believing God. And so, for a Reformed point of view, the sacraments are effectively a means of grace, like the Bible is a means of grace. They're a message from God to you, a promise. And the very essence of Christianity is to believe God in his promises. There is, however, a secondary part to this, and that is they are also promises of ours to God to be owned in the sense that the ceremony says to all those looking, I am a part of the covenant that this sacrament is connected to. Now, you might be saying, the pastor is now beginning to say that baptism is a response to grace, 
this is beginning to sound very Baptist, uh, what gives? Well, I said it was secondary, but it is present. And the Judaizers, the heretics, are playing up circumcision, which there's no question takes place when you're eight days old normally. So how can they be saying, now you've got to be circumcised? Well, it all comes down to, again, sacramentalism. Um, if you are born into a Jewish home, you are circumcised on the eighth day. You are raised as a Jew. If you are born into a Christian home, you are baptized as an infant, and you are raised as a disciple. But all of that doesn't matter if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, you just got wet, or you, you know, the cutting doesn't do anything now. Anyway, um, sacraments are symbols. But they do state to the world around us that we belong to a covenant and we are expected to own them. In the Anglican Catechism, they begin their catechizing with what, what happened when you were baptized. And they emphasize this secondary uh, purpose, but they are very definitely paedo-baptists. Question one, what is your name? Answer, whatever your name is. Question, who gave you this name? Answer, my sponsors in baptism, wherein I was made a member of Christ, the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Question, what did your sponsors then do for you? Answer, they did promise and vow three things in my name. First, that I should renounce the devil and all his works the pomps and vanity of this wicked world, and all the sinful lusts of the flesh. Secondly, that I should believe all the articles of the Christian faith. And thirdly, that I should keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in the same all the days of my life. Question, dost thou not think that thou art bound to believe and do as they have promised for thee? Answer, yes, verily. And by God's help, so I will. And I heartily thank our Heavenly Father that he has called me to the state of salvation through Jesus Christ our Savior. And I pray unto God to give me his grace that I may continue in the same unto my life's end. So the catechist in this Reformational church looks at a child, because this is catechism, and says, um, when you were brought to baptism, what happened? And the child says, well, some promises were made for me by my sponsors, specifically that I reject the devil and embrace God, if you boil it down to its basic form. They were made for me. They were made in my name. They were made by people who owned my obedience at that time. But then the catechist asks, now, do you feel that you are honor-bound by these promises made in your name? And the child says, yes. They are moving to a point where they're going to own their own obedience. They're going to own their faith or lack of faith. And the Christian disciple, if he believes, says, yeah, these promises that they made for me, these are my promises. 
this is what I should do. It's what the sacrament has said I should do. Uh, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to ask God's help for grace to believe. So, is the sacrament a statement from you? Well, yes, secondarily. It is primarily God's statement, but you have to own it. God gives it, but at some point you have to lay hold on it. And the Puritans themselves in the the larger catechism have a whole question on how do you improve your baptism, which is an amazing way of thinking. It's a crossing the Rubicon moment. And the people in the churches of Galatia that the Judaizers were talking to were adult people who owned their own obedience. And the Judaizers came to them and gave them this gospel. The Christ has come. God has promised the Christ all through the scriptures, and he has come. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And what Jesus of Nazareth has done is he has made a way for Jews who have lapsed in their obedience to the law to come back to the law. And he has also opened the kingdom of God to Gentiles if they will become Jews. If they will embrace God by obeying the law, they will be rewarded with salvation by obeying the law. If a, if a lapsed Jew begins to obey the law again through Jesus Christ, he will be redeemed, he will be saved by keeping the law because Jesus the Christ is not the subject of a new covenant. He is uh, fixing the old one. And that message, Paul says, um, is not exactly going to cut it. Turning back again to Galatians and going to the end, reading again from chapter 5, Paul says, this cuts you from Christ. If you think Christ has come to merely patch up law-keeping, you don't have Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, how can Paul say that? Well, Paul can say that because Christ is the giver of a new covenant. Law-keeping is old covenant. If you go to the book of Romans, and chapter uh, somewhere... If you go to Romans and chapter 9, I believe, um, any idea what my verse reference is? Okay. Thank you. Uh, Paul says this about where physical national Israel had gone. What shall we say then? That Gentiles 
who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So, Jesus Christ came to an Israel that had overthrown the gospel of grace. They weren't seeking him in grace. They were seeking God according to the first covenant, which is, do absolutely everything I tell you and I will keep you. That is the covenant that God had made with all mankind. And Israel said, yeah, we're going to do that. We are going to keep every law, we're going to keep every work, and God will receive us by our law-keeping. And Paul says that is a covenant, but it's not the covenant of Christ. Turning back again to Galatians in chapter 4, Paul talks about two covenants. Jesus is in one and the Mosaic law is in the other. Beginning in verse 21 and reading to verse 28, we read this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, I'm going to touch on a lot of these passages as we go through Galatians, and I'm just skimming their surface. But for right now, Paul says, you got Christ wrong. He did not come to patch up the first covenant. He did not come to make you more able to obey the law per se and be justified by that. Rather, he came as the substance of a second covenant, a covenant that if you try to be justified by your law-keeping, you are not in. Now, again, Paul has said the gospel has the same moral teachings as the law, and in Galatians, when we get to that very famous passage about the fruits of the Spirit, it will end with Paul saying, against such things there is no law, So the person in the second covenant is not an amoral person. He actually has a morality that the law embraces and presents. But the second covenant is a covenant of faith, and the sacrament of that covenant is a promise from God to you. It's the word of God enacted. But secondarily, it's something for you to take hold of and say, this is me. I have been baptized, my baptism represents my covenant, 
And my covenant is all of faith. It is all of the Holy Spirit. It is not of my flesh. My covenant is Jesus Christ alone. I want to be a moral person in Jesus Christ, but when I stand before God, I am not going to say to him, you will let me into this place because I am so good. I will say the only reason I have a right to be here is Jesus Christ bought me. And this is radically, radically different from Jesus Christ came to give you a second chance to be good. The first covenant speaks to the flesh. The flesh understands the first covenant. Israel, in its national form, had embraced the first covenant rather than the second. But the saving covenant, which is symbolized by baptism, is the covenant of faith. Now, when Paul had Timothy circumcised, nobody was saying, you need to cross the Rubicon. You need to make a a stand and say, this is me. In the churches of Galatia, the Judaizers were saying, you need to take a stand, you need to stand up for the real Christ. The real Christ uh, says you have to keep the law. Embrace that Christ by receiving circumcision. That will be your statement that this is me. That's very different than let's make sure everybody knows you're actually Jewish. This is a crossing the Rubicon. This is a taking of a stand and saying, this is my covenant. And God takes your making promises very seriously. This week, my spiritual reading was the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, this is what the Spirit of God says about making a promise to God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and in many words there is also vanity, but fear God. Solomon says, when you make a promise to God, God will hold you to it. And what was happening in circumcision was, the Judaizers were saying, come make a promise to God. Receive the sacrament of the law, which Jesus wants you to embrace. Embrace the first covenant, which is the covenant of law-keeping, Promise God you will do that. God expects you to keep your promises. And you have just looked at God and said, I will earn your favor. I will be morally good to the point where you will say, this man deserves to be in my presence. And Paul says, if that's what you're doing, one, you will fail. And number two, There is no place for Jesus Christ in that. Jesus Christ came to be a substitution for you, not to simply patch up your law-keeping. So if you receive circumcision in that context, if you receive circumcision in making a promise to God saying, I will relate to you by law, you are a damned soul. 
You've made a vow you cannot keep, and you have made a vow to God which expects you to keep your promises. Can you think of a more terrible place to be? 